on the Democratic side, the image that people had of who Republicans were looking out for was always far less frightening to voters. It was a 62-year-old grandma who went to church. That was the image of what it meant to be a Republican. That's changed. Now the image that are in people's mind of a Republican vacillates between an insurrectionist who is in fatigues to a angry racist grandpa screaming at everyone else at the dinner table. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jesse Ferguson, who is a political consultant and democratic strategist. He was formerly deputy national press secretary at Hillary for America. He's also run the DCCC's independent expenditure arm and been communications director on a Virginia governor's race, as well as being co-founder and executive director at Virginia 21, an advocacy organization for students and young voters. We had a good talk. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Jesse Ferguson of Jesse Ferguson, LLC. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jesse, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I was originally born in Richmond, Virginia. My mother was from New York City. My father was from upstate New York. They were living in Richmond at the time. We then moved to New York when I was about three, and I lived there until I was about 10, and then moved back to Richmond, and that was where my formative years in middle school, high school, were all in Richmond. People often ask me, did I enjoy New York more than Richmond, which was a really hard comparison. It's not like I was hitting the uh, <laughs> nightclub scene, the, the bar scene in New York at, at age eight. I was precocious, but not that pushy. Graduated from high school in Richmond, went to college at William & Mary. At William & Mary, studied government and economics. Was really focused more on foreign affairs at the time. Were you overlapping at all with like Nico Mealy who, who went there? So Nico actually graduated. He, his senior year was my freshman year. So we missed each other by a, a moment. Uh, but it is really a cadre. We realized it in the middle of the 2012 campaign. I was communications director at the DCCC at the time. And I was on the email chain with White House uh, communications staffer Jen Psaki and re-elect campaign staffer Brent Coburn, at which point the email chain, we sort of revealed that all three of us had gone to William & Mary. Chen was three years ahead of me. Brent was three years ahead of her. 
Do you recommend that school? I, I could not more highly recommend it. Um, great experience. Uh, you get the small liberal arts college feel, but you get it at a state school price. And a lot of you know what I do today kind of came out of, I graduated 20 years ago, but came out of um, my grounding at William & Mary. Although if you look at the successful people in our party, Nico, Chen, others, I had my time in William & Mary right after all of them. So I was sort of the run to the litter. <laughs> graduated from William & Mary, went to work uh, in state politics in Richmond for then Governor Warner, and then ended up starting and running a nonprofit that helped organize college students and young voters in Virginia to build support for his legislative agenda that was going to invest in higher education. And it's, uh, it really came out of my time at William & Mary. There was a bond referendum on the ballot in 2002. And a bunch of students organized, raised money, and did some paid advertising to support the bond referendum. And that ended up morphing into a full-time organization that I helped launch and then ran. Uh, good, good pro tip for anyone. If you can't find a job, create something and then hire yourself. I've done that. Well, if you can make it work. So did that and, and really built an organization with chapters at every public college in Virginia to organize around student financial aid and college funding and, and a number of other issues. I'm proud, frankly, the organization still exists, Virginia 21. I haven't been involved in it in 15 years, but the organization has, has persisted. Can I ask you one question about that? Sure. When you start a enterprise like that, there's a lot you learn, I think, about what it takes to create something new. What are a couple things that you did learn? You learn the value of relationships and building relationships. I spent a tremendous amount of time, whether it was college students and trying to get buy-in from students at Virginia Tech or JMU, reporters, legislators, or donors. It was all basically the same formula. You were building up enough of a relationship that they had confidence you weren't selling them snake oil and that you actually offered a compelling value proposition to them that they should want to invest in. And whether that was investing their time, their energy as a student, their money as a donor, is it kind of all the same thing? I think one of the mistakes people make in politics is thinking that each cone is like um, distinct. Fundraising is different from press, and press is different from field. And it's all kind of the same thing. It's all kind of making a successful pitch and, and building a relationship. It's just a different kind of person that you're doing it with. So I would say that was one. Persistence and kind of gumption is too strong a word, but willingness to put yourself out there was a key part of anybody's being successful early in their career. In my case, I had to be willing to walk into the offices of CEOs of large companies, and I'm a 22-year-old kid, and pitch them on an idea and ask them for a five-figure check, and be, uh, being okay with being told no, and not, you know, that not meaning that I needed to question all my life choices and 
spiral into, you know, regret and depression, but just means I need to move on to the next one on the list. To what extent were you blessed by the Warner operation and connected by them to these companies and other? We weren't blessed. I mean, we, we were pushing on, on an agenda that was part of their agenda. And the same with the public colleges in the state. They saw us as a valuable voice to have in this debate as they were fighting for, for higher education funding. And just to sort of set the backdrop, funding for public uh, universities in Virginia had been drastically cut in the previous administration and Governor Gilmore's administration. And at the time, Warner was trying to get the buy-in both from the public and the legislature to do a modest tax hike in order to fund public education, K-12 and higher. So having our voice on the higher education piece was valuable for everyone who supported that agenda. But the Warner team was raising for their own organization at the time, not, not for us. And then, you know, we thought about creative ways to break through the clutter. It was a debate around a sales tax increase at the time to, to fund it. We did a collection of pennies from public colleges around the state saying, I'd rather pay a penny in the sales tax than pass the buck when it came to public education and, you know, great visuals that, you know, work in front of the Capitol and get, get the type of media attention you want for something like that. And I would say the third lesson, which came out of all my time working in state politics, is the value of starting. And I, I, I say this often when I do campaign trainings and things like that, the value of starting in a state capital or in local government instead of immediately running to Washington for your first jobs. You learn a lot more as a bigger fish in a smaller pond. At age 23, I was able to walk into the minority leader's office and have a conversation with him and things you can't do in Washington at age 33 or even age 43. But you can do when you're in a, uh, a smaller environment, you're able to just have a bigger impact and learn a heck of a lot more than I ever would have learned, I think, had I started working in Washington day one. What was happening with you in the years between that startup and your DCCC years? After working for Virginia 21, I mean, 2006, I switched over to work for uh, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus in the legislature, who I'd gotten to know, and worked with him through the state legislative races in 2007, and then when he ran for governor in 2009, and helped build both of those organizations. We had a successful state legislative cycle that year. Uh, still didn't pick up the majority, but uh, it was actually the best legislative result in Virginia for Democrats up until 2017 and 19 when we reclaimed the majority. Um, and then his gubernatorial campaign in 2009, which we lost the primary, but I traveled around the state with him, handled communications and... Brian Moran? Exactly. What was that? Yeah. Uh, Brian, I was working for Brian Moran, who had been the caucus chairman and then ran for governor after Tim Kaine and then lost the primary. Learned a tremendous amount on that campaign about organizing, about strategy about building a team that actually could work together or sometimes didn't and about 
how to package your agenda and your candidate in a way that was compelling to a segment of the electorate. And then also just uh, as with any campaign, you have great anecdotes, great stories that come along with it. My favorite, which I still use with candidates and folks today, is that early on in the campaign, Brian had met with a large donor in Virginia, hadn't asked him for anything, had met with him, talked to him about some issues, this, that, and the other. Sent him a handwritten thank you note after the launch, and this must have been in 2007. Two years later, he's officially a candidate, goes back to that same donor. They talk, they do the small talk. He's winding up to make the sales pitch and to ask him for a large five-figure check. And the donor reaches his hand out and says, stop. I know what you're about to say. Pulls out of his pocket the thank you note that was two years old. Says, you took the time to write me a note after we talked last time. Here's my note to you and dropped a $25,000 check on the table. It is a great reminder how valuable that kind of personal touch is. And, then, and we saw the same experience with donors as we did with local Democratic chairs, local organizers. But that personal touch was so valuable for folks. I suddenly started feeling like I should have written a thank you note to everybody who's appeared on this podcast. I've been really remiss. <laughs> Let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now. But not that I'm expecting any checks. <laughs> I was about to say, even if you write me a thank you note, I don't have $25,000 to give you. <laughs> Moments like that, or my, my mentor on that campaign, a woman by the name of Mame Riley, who was previously Mark Warner's political director. She was also head of the DNC's Women's Caucus, influential political figure. Unfortunately, she's, she's passed away now, um, which is a real, a real loss, a real tragedy. Uh, her voice would be so wonderful right now in politics. But she had this wonderful way about her of being the consummate mentor and, and team builder, but at the same time being somebody you did not want to cross. She had this very high-pitched voice, and I vividly remember her, and I won't say who we're talking about, but her saying in a large group, she was the only woman in the room, five or six men, myself included, and she said, well, again, I can't imitate her voice, so I won't try, but imagine it in a very high-pitched tone. Well, if he doesn't do it, then I'll just chop his balls off and have him in a class on my desk for the rest of the year. And that was kind of the who she was. If you were on her side, she was with you 100%, and if you crossed her for a moment, she was relentless. I dealt with her about campaign software at one point, and I just remember that she had a reputation of being strong. Yes. One of the interesting things with a few exceptions in my career, I've almost always worked for women. Not by design, I'd love to say it was because I was pioneering or something. It's really just accidental. Particularly when I, I think about her, her career, both with Warner and, and, and years before that, and some of the things she did, especially at the time she was doing it. It's not a surprise how strong she was, but the flip side to it was how deeply committed she was to the people she supported and the people she worked with. 
but was like a little bit of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, in some ways, in a good way. But we lost that primary, and um, I took a little time off, and then ended up uh, at the start of 2010 uh, coming in to work at the DCCC. Did you enjoy your time at the DCCC? Uh, absolutely, with with some exceptions, like election night 2010, when we lost the majority, was not um, a particularly fun experience. Nor was 2014, was it? Uh, correct. Although 2014 was better. Better. 2012 was the best of those three years. What was your role over there? So uh, 2012, I was the communications director. And then 2014, I ran the independent expenditure for the committee. That 2014 job still stands out as probably my favorite job I've ever had. Not the most meaningful. The most meaningful may have been you know, later, but just the day-to-day work that we were doing. First, I, I, I had the attention span of a fruit fly. So working on a paid media campaign across 60 congressional districts sort of appealed to my need to bounce around on any given day. And the ability to sort of start to finish, think through not just an ad or another ad or a press release, but what was the story that we were going to tell about, typically we were telling the negative, what what story were we going to tell about incumbent congressman so-and-so or candidate so-and-so? And what could we really communicate? And then how to build that out in a narrative arc. So I think about um, ones we did in Orange County, California, where we were really telling a story about the incumbent Republican, uh, Mary Bono Mack, about how she'd been on the side of the insurance companies, had opposed laws to protect coverage for people with pre-existing conditions and how we told that story in a variety of different ways in a, a, a more personal patient oriented version in a more comedic take on it. And, 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 and we were able to put it all together. So by the end of the campaign, people really had the idea that she had sold them out on healthcare and um, you know, we won the seat. It strikes me that, that politics in those three cycles was, you know, relatively rough and tumble, but that if you look at the Republican party and its representatives, only this few number of years later, that there's something significant that's changed as part of sort of the Trump influence and just the drift of that party that it's was on before him. Can you put your finger on that? There's no doubt the Republican Party of 2011 would not recognize the Republican Party of 2021. That the seeds of what has taken over the party were there 10 years ago, but they were on the sidelines. They weren't in control. They weren't driving a train. That doesn't mean what they were doing in 2011 was good. I fought specifically against it. But the combination of the rise of Trump 
and the hollowing out of any real principles. And I don't just mean a policy sheet, but any guiding values around ethics, principles, around what it means to be a Republican. You can buy the convergence of both of those forces. Or what it means to be a citizen of a democratic republic. You know? At least for a segment of the population, yeah. Yeah. I, I At least that, for a segment of the elected membership, it's a, a, a good segment of it, unfortunately. A hundred percent. And they've gone from being committed to some principles that were wrong for the country to now no longer having a mind of their own. And the majority of the Republicans in Congress today are no more than kind of yes men for what Trump wants or what a extreme right-wing social media infused constituency wants. But there's no, there's no bedrock principle behind it. They can be fiscally conservative and fiscally irresponsible on the same day and not see anything incongruous with that at all. Can you see any dynamic that takes them off that path in the near future or relatively near future? Politics has a way of um, changing more rapidly than any of us expect it will. The worm can turn, yep. Yeah, that's been consistent. I'm sure if you asked people at the height of the 1960s was after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and, and, and Dr. King and others, are we ever going to get back to a normal politics again? Probably would have said no. I don't know. I wasn't, wasn't alive, but I can imagine. And sure enough, by, you know, 1975, we were arguably back to a more normal state of affairs in politics, which gives me hope that there is a return to a more normal, a more healthy functioning democracy in the not too distant future. My problem is I can't chart the path from here to there. Yeah. And it could get a lot worse. Oh, a thousand. And it may need to get worse in order to get better. Unfortunately, the Republican party has really been taken over by to quote from the big Lebowski, right? They're nihilist, man. They've lost any sort of sense of what they are for. They're merely for what they're against. In order to break that, one of two things probably has to happen, if not both. They need a bottom out, which means things are going to get worse. They need to lose handily. And we, we won 2020, but we won it by a razor's edge. And they may need to see a resounding defeat. And if they win instead of losing in the next two. It's going to embolden it for a generation. 2022 and 2024 will test whether this is a, this phenomenon is an aberration or this is a phenomenon for a generation. And I don't know which it is. And, and Jesse, what troubles me about that is I don't think the voters will necessarily see that on the ballot. They may operate in a more normal way, which is like, we're not too happy with the way the world is. We're going to change parties. Retrospective voting tends to be the way political scientists see a lot of how things happen. And we might just pick 
Republicans in Congress in the midterm and pick Trump or someone like him again because of troubles in the world, troubles in the country, rather than than really wanting to test authoritarianism or something. Oh, uh, 100%. I think there's a prospect for that. Although I think if we are able to continue to turn the page a little bit on the economy, not that everything is going to be great, but make progress, if we are able to deliver on a few of the things that we've sort of talked about as core, if we are able to show that we're getting the pandemic really under control, I think that takes a lot of the wind out of the sails for the change argument. Uh, you know, I ultimately think particularly about midterms as a choice that voters have to make first, whether to rehire you or fire you. And then, am I willing to hire the other guy or should I just go back to what I started with because they were better in the first place? And our first threshold is convincing voters that it's okay to rehire us. Our second threshold is if they're not sure they want to rehire us, we got to convince them that hiring the other guy would be far worse. I would just layer into that whether they whether they want to vote at all. You know, that's that turnout thing in midterms is a huge part of the of who wins and loses. And I think we'll get an early indication out of that from my my home Commonwealth of Virginia in about a month. That's usually a harbinger for what the midterm turnout will look like. We usually see it in these off years in Virginia. What are you thinking about the McAuliffe governor race right now? It's close. I think McAuliffe has the the lead. He has the advantage, but it is a narrow advantage. And I would I, I would certainly not bet my 401k on which way this thing is going to go. People have misunderstood that this race has tightened dramatically. And in both the data I've seen and in my, my time in Virginia, I can tell you it was always going to be tight. One of the great advantages of Virginia as a place for experimentation and a place to learn is that it is a little bit of every kind of voter. It has suburban voters and growing Hispanic populations and large African-American populations and military families and rural. So it, it, it has all of it together in a real way that makes it a petri dish for the country. But that means it's got enough Republicans that a Republican can absolutely win. And while Democrats have won the last few elections there, we've typically won with 52%, 51%, 53%. The last time a Republican won statewide, which was Bob McDonnell in 2009, 10 years ago, he won with 58% of the vote. No Democrats gotten to 58% of the vote. My point being, there is still a large share of the electorate that is very much Republican in Virginia. And that was always going to make this race tight. Layer on to it the fact that the Republican nominee, Glenn Youngkin, is uh, independently wealthy and is pledged to spend as much as $75 million of his own money in the race. To put that in context, the Virginia gubernatorial race is typically a $30 million affair. He's pledged to put as much as 75 of his own in. That can change the dynamic. He really sees himself as the Rick Scott of Virginia. He can buy himself a governor's office, then he'll buy himself a Senate seat, and, and he's off to the races. And his ad campaign that he's put these dollars behind 
has really been about avoiding any substance whatsoever and nearly building up his favorabilities with independent voters. And some of that has worked. Um, I think it's reversing a little bit now as he's getting more and more exposed for being a, a yes man for Trump. But anyone who sleeps on this race will uh, will be regretting it when they wake up. I'm curious about your your time with the Hillary 2016 campaign. It must have been a major stretch there to be one of the major spokesmen for that campaign and such a painful one for the world and for this country. Tell me about that campaign and election. Yeah. Um, and look, it was a, an amazing opportunity to work for somebody who I believed in to work on the right side. You know, I, I will always believe I was on the right side of history in that. And I think history will bear that out each and every day. The best part about it was what we were talking about and the team I was working with. The hardest part about it was realizing the impediments that existed both in the coalition Trump was forming, in some of the attacks that she took that were built on 20 and 25 years of a narrative about her. Then at the end, to realize we were facing not just years of a narrative about her, a Republican Party determined to defeat her, and a Trump campaign willing to do and say anything, but also outside actors, Russians, WikiLeaks, the hacks, all of that kind of layering onto it. There's not a day of that campaign I would trade away the experience of it, with the possible exception of Election Day, but it was absolutely grueling from when we announced the campaign and I had, you know, networks calling because they were going to um, deploy helicopters a la the OJ chase to like follow her car as she drove to Iowa. It was that kind of fury and frenzy. Spectacle. Yeah. Theater. I had a very tiny and weird experience with the press in that campaign. I had been doing technology, running technology for her previous run for president. And uh, my IT director had been the one to set up her email server. You probably heard of it in the news. Yeah, I've heard a little and, bit about it. And I happened to know him to be one of the most upright people around. And I had a couple interactions with a reporter for the Washington Post who was asking me about it. I tried to say, this is, you're, you're making too big a deal out of this. And I spent a lot of the time during that campaign, not particularly about that reporter or about the Post or about any particular organ, but just feeling like the press was badly bungling something really, really important. And I'm just still angry about the coverage. I felt like they thought it was in the bag and therefore they could go after her on something like this in a disproportionate fashion. I haven't really let that go in a, in a maybe an immature way. What was your take on that? Yeah, look, I, I, I share some of those emotions for sure and some of those feelings. 
I also think one of my kind of diagnoses, and it didn't really hit me till after the fact, and it plays out in, in some of the debates that have happened even at, you know, nowadays. One of the real advantages of that Trump had was that he did so many different things that were objectionable that no one thing broke through and stuck to him. Every five minutes. Right. So no one ever heard the substance of what any of those one things was, whether it was his business deals or his dealings with Putin or his dealings with Saudi Arabia or things he said about women or whatever it was, it almost always became a day's worth of news that was then trumped, no pun intended, by the next day's scandal for him. So all voters heard about Donald Trump was the media says he's bad. They never heard why, because the why changed every 12 hours. Maybe they heard all that and some of them didn't mind it, liked it. I mean, he was very unpopular, but he was also very avidly followed. And there's something arresting about him is what I really mean. Like there's something like you kind of want to watch the guy. He's an entertainer. A hundred percent. He's an entertainer. He's got a watchable quality. I remember seeing this in some of the research during the campaign if you put people in a focus group, they wouldn't admit their true opinions of him. But if you put them in an online discussion board and told them that their responses wouldn't be seen by others, they were far more free to say, he's an asshole, but he's my asshole, was the sentiment that broke through with them. And I think there's another piece of it, and it came out in the exit polling data when I compare 2016 to 2020. In 2016, 18% of the electorate was unfavorable to both candidates. So they hated them both. And they voted for Donald Trump by, I think it was 23 points. I'm doing that from memory. But they voted for Trump in a significant way. Arguably made the difference in the swing states. Fast forward to 2020. Among the people who were unfavorable to both Biden and Trump, the margin by which Trump won them was the same. It was that same 23 points. He still won the double haters. The difference was in 2020, that was only 3% of the electorate. Taking that one, that one kind of window onto the electorate in aggregate, do you think by the time we reach the next election that the media ecosystem on the right will have the haters of Biden up to those same levels? I don't know that they'll get them to the same levels. That was built on, you know, 25 years of demonizing her. It was built on a gender, you know, let's elephant in the room. There was absolutely a sexism and a gender bias that plays into that. I don't know that they'll get them to the same place, but they're sure going to try. They know they can't convince people to like Trump. So they're going to try to make the audience bigger who hates them both. And that's going to be their strategy going into, going into 2024. And they'll be more successful with it than they were in 2020. 
but probably less successful than they were in 2016. Tell me about that role. If you were advising someone who had a similar role in an upcoming presidential, what advice would you give about how to do that job well? It's a good question. I think the advice would be a couple things. One, when you're dealing with the press, you're really trying to do three things. One, find a way to tell your story and communicate your message, but you're only going to be effective if you are seen as much of an honest broker as you can be, that doesn't mean you're giving away the store. That means you're giving away secrets. Many a time I told a reporter, you know, I'm not going to tell you that. That's okay. But they get it. The other piece of it is your job is to live in the day-to-day news cycle, but your job will be judged by the totality of the news cycle. And that's a really hard, and a, and a perspective I didn't have in 2015 and 16, I wish I did. I judged every day as did we win or lose that day and didn't always see how the totality of the days were coming together and what people were seeing who weren't living it all day. I don't know that that would have changed anything I tried to do, but it's hard to be measured on a metric that is almost different than the metric of success. You're trying to please two objectives at the same time. What did you think about that press team in general, the people who worked alongside you and above you? I don't think there's anyone who sort of has seen the strategic landscape in the same way as Jen has, as Jen Palmieri, who was my boss, and who has successfully managed brands for politicians in a way she really kind of wraps her head around. But I think she's learned a lot since that campaign and, and, and has written publicly about, you know, how she may have underestimated particularly the gender biases that weren't overt. I don't think most of the biases that were there that were a hindrance were overt biases, either in the press or in the voter, in the voting public. But that doesn't take away the covert biases that we, you know, all have. I mean, I I said I've worked for women almost my whole career, and I'm sure I still have them. Many thousands of years of human history to overcome yet. A hundred percent. It's to say whether it's whether it's gender bias, racial bias. The idea is absolutely right that we have to confront them. The idea that we can confront them and move past them in the short order is absolutely wrong. We're talking about too much ingrained history to assume that we can move past them in the short order. We need to understand them. But it's such a core part of the Republican message when they talk about Democrats wanting to take things away from people like you and give things to other people. They are absolutely playing on those biases in a very real way. And Let's be clear, it's very effective. Anytime I sit through a focus group, it's a core part of the problem or challenge that we have with our brand today. And if we don't confront that challenge, we'll never be able to make sort of the inroads back that we think we need in order to both hold power and also stave off the complete existential threat to democracy that I think we both see on the horizon. 
feel free to to ask to skip this question if you don't want to deal with it but um, before we started recording i had asked you about your voice and you said that you'd been ill during your time at the d trip and that it's still to some degree with you what happened and do you want to share a little bit about your health travails Sure, I'm happy. I, as it, I've been pretty public about it since I was first diagnosed um, in May of 2013. I was gearing up to run the independent expenditure at the DCCC. I was the deputy director at the committee. Noticed a bit of swelling in my face. Investigated it. Took a little while, and then they diagnosed it as a as a, a head and neck cancer, as an adenocarcinoma. I spent the subsequent four and a half months in Houston, Texas at MD Anderson, getting treated, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery that was all successful at the time and eliminated a pretty advanced stage threat. And one of the many reasons why on top of her brilliance and her strategic acumen and everything else that I will remain uh, forever indebted and loyal to Nancy Pelosi is when she heard what was going on. She was the one who called MD Anderson and said, talk to this patient. And since then, the disease is not gone. It's under control. It occasionally flares up. We change the medication. We radiate a little here, there. In 2015, I had some breathing issues. So it's, it's still part of my life, but has become really a chronic illness. And um, you kind of deal with it uh, as you deal with anything else in life. Uh, you deal with it when it comes up. You deal with it uh, as you need to. And then you continue doing that, which you enjoy doing. It's one of the reasons, and I say this a lot when I'm talking to groups of students or campaign trainings, that it's so important to enjoy what you do for a living. I worked all through both the uh, radiation and, and some of the harder parts of that and then and then through the years since and my then boss at the DCCC used to joke about how fortunate she was that I was still a contributing member of the committee while I was going in and out of radiation and I used to joke with her actually I was the fortunate one because it gave me something to distract my attention with something I love to do and it was actually, I was the, on the winning end of that. But you learn how to make it work. You learn how to, you know, I, in the 2016 campaign, I was getting some regular treatments about once a month for an hour. And if the Russians really wanted to know what we were up to, they would have tapped my chemotherapy room. They could have heard me on a conference call for that hour because I almost always worked during it. They could have figured it all out. If only they knew where to place the microphone. You learn how to how to balance it. It's like any other challenge that goes on in life. You sort of learn how to balance it. Well, it sounds actually quite shitty, and I'm sorry you had to deal with it, but it's it's it is life. Exactly. Yeah. You, uh, I've I've never been a big um, stop and smell the roses kind of person. Has never been my mo. Uh, maybe it it is through all of it. It's maybe forced me to at least realize there's a rose garden somewhere out there. That's about the most it's kind of impacted my day-to-day -day work. It's just a reality of life. 
after you recovered from that election, you started your own enterprise. What is that and what sort of work have you been doing? Yeah, I took about a month and a half to not get dressed and not shower and, you know, do those sort of things. And um, got a call from folks starting an organization called Protect Our Care that we're going to be working on defending against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act in the early years of the Trump administration. Trump had full control of Congress. We all assumed it'd be a three to six month fight and frankly, we'd lose because Republicans had full control of Congress and have been pledging to do this for a decade. Having been at the DCCC when we passed the Affordable Care Act, and probably having gone through some of the health challenges I had on my own, I really was up for the fight to protect what we had achieved in, in the ACA and started doing some consulting work on political strategy, message development, marketing and media, advertising for Protect Our Care. And they became my first client. I would love to say it was a grand strategy to start a firm on my own that implies way too much strategy behind it. In reality, it was an accidental first client out of the necessity to take a shower and start engaging with society after the 2016 election. And since then, I've added a number of other clients to that, that I do work for as a general consultant. I had talked to Leslie Dock back in 2017. Is that who you were working with? Yep. Exactly. Leslie uh, was the founder of Protect Our Care and had worked in the uh, HHS during the Obama administration. Seemed like a very impressive person. Yep. And uh, I was fortunate that he brought me on the team. And I still do work for them. And uh, since then, have taken on a variety of issue campaigns on climate, healthcare, prescription drugs, guns, number of issues about how we market them, how we build an advertising campaign for them, how we sync up a strategy that works for the politics of the moment and with voters at the moment. Is this just you or do yeah. you have staff at all? Yeah. So it's, No, I've, I've it's, never... Um, I, I jokingly say I don't actually have the uh, courage to hire staff because that means I then have to be responsible to pay them. And uh, that's, a, that's a Rubicon I've been unwilling to cross. And then I've done a bunch of independent expenditures, i.e. campaigns in both 2020 and 2018 for a House, Senate, and presidential race, really thinking about how do we tell a holistic story about either a candidate or an issue in a multi-modal uh, way, different digital um, media, different television media, et cetera. And how do we tell that story in a compelling way that might actually persuade voters? And when I say persuade, I mean both persuade to vote for us and persuade to vote is I think too often we pretend like those are two different things when in reality, it's the same thing. We're still trying to persuade people to do something. Uh, it's just a question of persuade to vote, persuade to turn out, 
or persuade to you know switch their voting preference. How much do you think it matters what comes out of the congressional bargaining around infrastructure and big reconciliation and the 2022 midterms and sort of how we govern now and how we run and fare next fall? This is going to be a tough midterm. We know that. Midterms are always tough for the party in power. We have a very slim majority. Redistricting in the House is going to make some of that majority even slimmer. Maybe not as bad as some of the more dire predictions had been, but still uh, redistricting and on net is not going to benefit us. We need to go into the midterms with every arrow in our quiver and not having a story to tell about what we delivered for people who work for a living, particularly on the type of issues that people are thinking about every day, rising prices of prescription drugs, healthcare costs, taxes, cost of living, the existential threat of climate change, the quality of the water that people drink. If we can't deliver on those core priorities, then we're leaving our best arrows at home and we're not putting them in our quiver when we go into the midterms. I don't know that that, that'll mean we win the midterms, but it is a massive mistake to show up without giving yourself the best chance for success. I'm hopeful that we'll have gotten done those things that we need to get done so we have a record to run on. And then we'll be sharply contrasting that record with the Republican opposition to it and with the Republican Party that, as we've talked about a little bit already, has become radicalized and has become unstable and unable to govern. So the contrast that voters see in the midterms is one party that maybe they don't like all the time, maybe they have questions about, but it's a party that got something done that mattered in their life compared with another party that they're fearful of being too radical and unstable and untrustworthy with the keys to government. Do you think that's perceivable by an average person? I mean, both parties are yelling that the other party is a risk of authoritarianism. Both parties are yelling that the other side is, you know, like crazy on their fringe. Even if one of them is only telling the truth and the other one isn't, how does a, a average person certainly if they're steeped in the other media ecosystem, how can that really trickle down? How can people distinguish between the sides in this day and age? Uh, 100%. One of the lasting impacts of January 6th is not the substance of what happened, but it is the image of what happened. Ultimately, people are going to see this radicalization, not because one side says it about the other, because as you talk about, both sides are shouting it back and forth, but the images of that day and other days before and since have left an imprint on, on a lot of voters for what it means to be a Republican. 
one of the challenges I think Democrats have had for generation is that the image that Republicans used to talk about who Democrats look out for was almost always somebody who was poor, black, brown. That's who they said we were the party of. Those were the images that they used in their advertising to describe us. And unfairly, a lot of voters, particularly white voters, recoiled at that. That's been the story, you know, the last 20 years, 30 years even, trace it back to the welfare queen trope to the early 80s. On the Democratic side, the image that people had of who Republicans were looking out for was always far less frightening to voters. It was a 62-year-old grandma who went to church. That was the image of what it meant to be a Republican. That's changed. Now the image that are in people's mind of a Republican vacillates between an insurrectionist who is in fatigues to a angry racist grandpa screaming at everyone else at the dinner table. We now have an image of them which may be as harmful to them and their brand in a way we haven't had in a long time. Well, maybe we have it on our side. I don't think they see themselves that way at all. And I, I think they just have a, a very different lens. I wonder, Jesse, if there's a question that I haven't asked that I should have of you. To your point about what 2016 meant, uh, I spent a long time thinking about where I was going to spend election day 2020. And I almost spent it on a park bench outside the Javits Center with a bottle of scotch just to exercise my demons. But what did you do instead? I I was actually down in Virginia with with family. So I wasn't in New York at the time. I hid out in my wood shop and and listened to NPR and just tried to calm down. And um, but no, I, I think I think we've hit on all of it. We talked about my work. I mean, most of what I've been doing has been, you know, large scale advertising campaigns around major issues. Are you pretty happy with what what your practice is these days? Yeah. I mean, does that mean I'll still be doing this in two years or four years? Who knows? I've never been one who wrote a master plan of how I was going to get from point A to point B. Um, That's why you can't actually even find a website for me or my work. I own jessieferguson.com. There's nothing there. I've never been, uh, have that sort of charted that. It's more than what are the things in front of me that I think I can add value to. And I think I would gain value from. And those have been the things that I've sort of jumped into over the years. What stops you from planning further out? Uh, Because as we said, who knows what politics is going to look like in 12 months, 18 months, heck, in 12 days. You do your best to sort of steer the ship, but anyone's long-term predictions in politics are rarely worth worth the paper that they're printed on. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty chaotic system. Well, it's really been an honor to talk to you. I'm so glad this worked out. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you taking the time.
That was Jesse Ferguson. Jesse's at Jesse F. Ferguson on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.